0: Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about the use of robotics and minimally invasive surgery for urologic cancers with Dr. Joseph Brito. Dr. Brito is an assistant professor of medicine and urology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology.
1: Maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit more about uh, yourself and what it is you do.
2: Sure. Um, I'm a urologist and urologic oncologist, you know, focusing in the treatment of cancers of the kidney, bladder, and prostate. We also take care of testicular cancer, um, and, you know, this is Kidney Cancer Awareness Month, so, um, you know, happy to be here and discuss kidney cancer specifically today.
1: So, you know, when we think about minimally invasive surgery, I think a lot of people by now have gotten used to the concept of laparoscopic surgery, the, the concept of taking out gallbladders and appendixes, um, w- through little tiny, uh, incisions, the concept of robotic surgery has now taken off as well, um, in large part uh, in urology, but can you tell our audience a little bit more about um, what robotic surgery is, um, how it's the same or different from laparoscopic surgery, and what exactly you use it for, particularly in urology?
2: Sure. I'm actually really glad you asked this question because I feel like I spend a decent amount of my day explaining to patients what the robot does and doesn't do. So laparoscopy, as you said, is essentially making small incisions in the abdomen and then through those incisions, filling the abdominal cavity with air. Um, So essentially you're creating a dome uh, and that allows us to do surgery inside the abdominal cavity without making a big incision, um, which is how things used to be done. The robot is is laparoscopic surgery. It's just a tool. So it holds the instruments for us. Um, it allows us to make fine movements. It allows us to work in spaces that would otherwise be difficult for human hands, or in some cases, even laparoscopic instruments to gain access to. So I think um, sometimes there's a common misconception that the robot does the surgery and we just kind of, you know, turn it on and go have coffee or something. That's not, that's not the way it works. So, um, you know, it's a two-part, uh, operation basically. So you have a patient, of course, on the operating room table, there's the robot, which is holding the instruments. There's an assistant at the bedside who's putting the instruments in and out, um, and maybe running a suction device or helping, um, you know, with various aspects of the case at the bedside. And then the surgeons in the same room generally, um, you know, maybe four or five feet off to the side, there's a second console that the surgeon sits at um, and we're operating those robotic arms. So uh, that's sort of the nuts and bolts of robotic surgery. In terms of the benefits, I mean, many of the benefits we saw with laparoscopy are what we're seeing with robotics. So generally you're talking about less operative pain, um, faster recovery, less blood loss, shorter hospital stays. Um, and in cancer specifically, generally we're preserving the oncologic benefits, the cancer benefits of the operation um, with those additional benefits of laparoscopic approach.
1: And so, you know, when we think about robotics versus laparoscopic surgery, some of the advantages that you mentioned, I mean, you get a little bit more dexterity um, with the using the robot arms instead of the, the standard laparoscopic uh, instruments. Um, can, can you tell us, have there been studies that have really looked at tangible differences in terms of all of the things you mentioned, uh, blood loss, uh, hospital length of stay, operative time, cost, um, comparing laparoscopic versus robotic surgery?
2: Yeah, so it's a great question. I mean, most of the studies that are done are comparing lap slash robotic to open. So what I was just mentioning in terms of blood loss, hospital stay pain, I mean, there's no question that those are generally much better for a laparoscopic uh, or robotic approach. When you're comparing laparoscopic and robotic directly, for the most part, um, it depends on the operation. So for instance, in prostatectomy, I think most people would agree that a robotic prostatectomy is really the gold standard, um, and that's even over laparoscopy. Now, there's probably several reasons for that. Some of it's training. Some of it's just learning curve, which tends to be a little better with the robot. Um, cost is generally higher when you're comparing laparoscopy to robotics, although you know it depends on if you're looking at direct operative costs, if you're looking at longer-term costs, like how the impact is on things like uh, urinary function, return to continence, sexual function specific to prostate. You know, some of that cost might wash out. Um, in the kidney specifically, you know, generally we're using the robot for either radical nephrectomy, which is removal of the whole kidney, or partial nephrectomy, which is removal of a portion, specifically the tumor usually. Um The real benefit there robotically, uh, at least in my opinion, is, again, that dexterity. So, for instance, when you're doing a partial nephrectomy and we're removing a tumor off the kidney, we then have to close that defect up. And that's generally done uh, with stitches. Um, And stitching with the robot, I think most would agree, is uh, easier, perhaps finer. um, And I would say probably a shorter learning curve in terms of mastery than, than it would be with a laparoscopic approach alone.
1: And so, you know, I think many people have heard about the robotic approach for, for prostate, less so for kidney. So is that really now coming into for? I mean, is it something that uh, people are being offered as standard practice in terms of having a robotic nephrectomy?
2: Absolutely. Um, when it comes to radical nephrectomy, robotic and laparoscopic approaches, you know, Basically, equivalent in terms of cancer control and the actual outcome you're getting from the surgery. Um, there, are, there are plenty of surgeons out there that are doing laparoscopic partial nephrectomy as well. But um, again, the robot makes that approach, I think, a lot more palatable. You know, there are benefits at the surgeon level to robotics as well. Um, things like, you know, when you're standing there at the bedside doing laparoscopic surgery, can be straining on the neck. It could be straining on the back. The robot takes a lot of that out of it for the surgeon. Um, when it comes to availability, I think robotics in general has really permeated into the community. Um, so I spend the majority of my clinical time out in New London at Lawrence Memorial Hospital. Um, we've had a robot here ever since I've been here. And I think many community sites are similar. So patients are, are certainly being offered robotic approaches for kidney surgery, Probably in many instances, more than they're being operated uh, or offered rather a laparoscopic only approach. Hmm.
1: And so, you know, that brings you to the next question, which is: you did mention that there's a difference in cost. Is that difference passed on to the patient? I mean, uh, when they get their their bill um, for their copay or or whatever, is is it a higher amount that they're paying for for the robotic approach? And is that something that many patients are taking into consideration when choosing whether to go laparoscopic or robotic? Or are patients even given the choice?
2: That's a really good question. Um, you know, I don't know the answer to tell you the truth. I think that it depends on a lot of factors, which I don't have granular data on. Things like various insurance company, you know, how the hospital manages various costs and passes that on to the patient. Um there is probably no question that a laparoscopic only radical nephrectomy, for instance, may be cheaper at the surgical level than it is um, for a robotic approach. But um, you know, again, I, I can't tell you specifically how that gets passed on to the patient. I think Like many things in medicine, it probably depends on your surgeon's level of comfort with a various approach or a various surgery, what technology they have available. You know, some of this is patient driven as well. I think a lot of patients come to see me and I think a lot of surgeons because they're facile with the robot and um, they've heard about the benefits of robotics. And so they're really looking for that approach.
1: You mentioned um, when we were talking earlier about prostate cancer that while uh, there may be an increased cost uh, to the the operation itself, that there may be a, a reduced cost long-term in terms of a reduction in side effects. So, you know, issues with urinary incontinence or stream or sexual function, etc. cetera. Um, are there data to, to support the idea that um, outcomes are better with robotic surgery versus laparoscopic surgery in terms of preserving nerve function, for example?
2: So for prostate, certainly comparing open and robotic, absolutely. I mean, very clear benefits in terms of continence, um, sexual function probably as well. Um, you know, it's it's a little difficult to interpret The lap versus robotic data for prostate because not a lot of people are doing laparoscopic, you know, pure laparoscopic prostatectomy. Um, It's just something that's very technically challenging and the robot takes a lot of those technical challenges out of the way. Um... But absolutely, you know, comparing urinary function and probably sexual function in terms of our ability to accurately spare nerves and really do the finer aspects of that operation, um, which really is a delicate surgery, especially when it comes to the reconstruction portion of it. You know, that really is where the robot shines um, in such a sort of narrow anatomic space.
1: And, And what about for kidney cancers? Do we see the same kinds of things there?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, certainly different concerns, right? When you're talking about kidney surgery, we're not talking about urinary continence or sexual function. Um, but I can say certainly in my hands, and I think in a lot of surgeons hands, um, specifically for a partial nephrectomy, you know, doing that reconstruction, especially if it's in a difficult part of the kidney, it's very challenging to do some of the finer aspects of that operation. Um, pure laparoscopic. It can certainly be done open and probably with the same efficacy open, but then you're talking about a fairly large incision, which for the kidney is either a big incision under the rib cage, which can be fairly painful during the recovery process, or a big incision in the midline. Um, So again, in those cases you're looking at, especially if you're doing that surgery open, a longer hospital stay, more post-operative pain medication requirements, narcotic use, and then you're dealing with things like constipation and wound infection issues so you know when it comes to some of those more complex cases the robot is is a major help
1: talk a little bit about training i mean when you were describing how a robotic case occurs um earlier you mentioned that uh the the patient is on the operating room table there might be an assistant at the bedside who's um, kind of changing instruments in and out, but the surgeon really sits at a console and and manages the arms of the robot. So, if you're a trainee, uh, an up and coming surgeon, how do you learn how to work the robot?
2: Yeah, so it's a great question, and actually, it's a somewhat hotly debated and and um, there's a lot of interest in how residents and you know future surgeons should be trained. Different institutions do it different ways. I can tell you when I was a resident, we had a protocol where as the resident, your job for you know X number of cases was to be at the bedside, being that bedside assistant. So you knew the steps of the case. You knew what instruments to put in and out at which times. You really learned the operation. Um, and of course, you were watching the whole surgery as well. Um, there's no real standardized way that residencies are doing it like across the United States, for instance. but um, but again, there is a lot of exposure to that, I think, broadly in urology residency these days. And as the robot permeates more out into um, out into these community hospitals and you have more robots at the major medical centers, There's just a lot more exposure to it. So when residents are graduating now, for the most part, they've seen, you know, hundreds probably of robotic procedures. And many will then go on to do, if they want to focus in oncology or in robotics, they'll go on to do a specific fellowship in minimally invasive surgery, robotic surgery.
1: All right. Well, we'll pick up the conversation uh, with that right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about the use of robotics and minimally invasive surgery for urologic cancers with my guest, Dr. Joseph Brito.
0: Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital, where their melanoma program brings together an extensive multidisciplinary team to diagnose, treat, and care for patients with melanoma and other skin cancers. SmiloCancerHospital.org Genetic testing can be useful for people with certain types of cancer that seem to run in their families. Genetic counseling is a process that includes collecting a detailed personal and family history, a risk assessment, and a discussion of genetic testing options. Only about 5-10% to 10% of all cancers are inherited and genetic testing is not recommended for everyone. Individuals who have a personal and or family history that includes cancer at unusually early ages, multiple relatives on the same side of the family with the same cancer, more than one diagnosis of cancer in the same individual, rare cancers, or family history of a known altered cancer predisposing gene could be candidates for genetic testing. Resources for genetic counseling and testing are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers such as Yale Cancer Center and its Milo Cancer Hospital. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Joseph Bredo. We're talking about the use of robotics and minimally invasive surgery for urologic cancers. And Joseph, right before the break, you were talking about um, training, uh, of residents and fellows and, and you had mentioned that, you know, while there is no standardization for this training, uh, frequently, you know, the resident will be at the bedside putting instruments in and out. Um, they'll get to watch the, the robotic surgery, but there's a big difference between watching the surgery and actually doing the surgery at the console. So can you talk a little bit about? how trainees actually gain that facility with using the robot at the console because it would seem that that's really a major advantage of robotic surgery is the facility that the surgeon has with using the robot and the dexterity of its arms.
2: Yeah, of course. I mean, with any surgical approach, surgical instrument, the the surgeon needs to have familiarity with it, be able to use it safely and well. With the robot at most teaching institutions, there is um, basically a trainer console. So it's almost in some ways like a driver's ed setup where you have the surgeon that has ultimate control over the robot, and then you have a trainee who's sitting at another console, usually next to or directly across from the surgeon. So, you know, the surgeon can essentially will control the robot over to the resident or trainee. They can operate um, for a minute or a few minutes. Uh, the surgeon can sort of watch what they're doing, and then if something is happening that they don't like, or the surgeon's ready to take control back, they can just go ahead and do that. So you know, it gives the resident a opportunity to gain some skill, learn the robot um, while under a pretty closely supervised environment. Um, the other thing I think is important to note is just that whenever you're doing a laparoscopic or a robotic surgery, everything that's happening is being broadcast onto essentially big TV screens in the operating room. And so, you know, not just the surgeon and the assistant can see what's happening, but really everyone in the operating room can see scrub nurses, the scrub techs, the anesthesia team. So um, in a lot of ways, the resident and the surgeon really are, are more closely watched and observed than they would be in an open surgery
1: let's take a step back for a moment. As you had mentioned um, earlier, you know, this is uh, Kidney Cancer Awareness Month. Um, So, let's talk a little bit about kidney cancer. We had talked a little bit about uh, surgery, um, and you had mentioned that for some patients, they require a total nephrectomy, others a partial nephrectomy. Um, Talk a little bit about how those decisions are made and kind of situate. Um, the treatment of kidney cancer in a multidisciplinary context. Sure.
2: So probably first important to differentiate between cancers of the cortex or outer portion of the kidney, uh, the sort of meaty part of the kidney, and cancers of the lining or central part of the kidney, uh, a part of the, the collecting system or renal pelvis or ureter. So this is really the urinary drainage part of the kidney. They're tumors that are, you know, both types of cancer, but different types and really managed in very different ways. So, when we're talking about removing just the kidney or removing just a part of the kidney, usually we're talking about those cortical renal, usually renal cell carcinoma being the most common type, of renal tumors. When we're talking about the lining of the kidney, the collecting system, um, that's a different type of kidney cancer altogether, Um, what we call urothelial carcinoma, or used to be referred to as transitional cell carcinoma. It's much more akin to bladder cancer really than it is to kidney cancer, because the cell type that lines the renal pelvis and the ureter is the same type of cell that lines the bladder. And so our approach to those cancers um, is generally different. Now, sometimes we're still removing the kidney for those renal pelvis tumors. But usually if we're doing that, we're also removing the entire ureter on that side. So taking that kidney tube that drains all the way down into the bladder and removing the entire thing, and usually with a small portion of the bladder as well. Um, So, you know, again, very different types of cancer managed in different ways. Um, One thing I think probably bears bringing up is there are significant efforts afoot to try to spare removing the entire kidney and spare removing the entire kidney and ureter for some of these upper tract um, types of cancer. You know, we didn't really have a lot of options until somewhat recently, really in the past couple of years um we were basically either doing that radical surgery or we were trying to manage what we could endoscopically you know putting a camera up from below uh maybe doing biopsies maybe using a laser to try to ablate some of those tumors endoscopically but really only so much we could do and again only treating what we could see um we've just recently started using uh a type of chemotherapeutic agent called mitomycin um which has been used in the bladder for many years But it's been reformulated into a a gel type of format. Um, So the same medication, but sort of suspended in a gel. Um, And this has been approved since 2021. But this can now be instilled directly into the kidney. And for some patients, um, offer them basically a non-surgical option to try to treat and really ablate some of these lower-grade tumors and save the kidney.
1: Wow. I mean, that sounds... Really remarkable. So um, because, you know, as you described the the surgery itself, nobody, first of all, would necessarily want to undergo a surgery, period, even if it can be done with small little incisions using a laparoscope or a robot. But when you think about removing the kidney, removing the ureter, removing part of the bladder... You know, that that sounds rather extensive. If this can be treated with installation of a a gel in the kidney, that that seems much more palatable. So talk a little bit about which patients are eligible for this, and how exactly do we get the gel into the kidney? Sure.
2: So, you know, important to note, not every patient would be a candidate for for this, you know, mitomycin gel installation. Um, Really, we're talking about patients with low-grade tumors of the renal pelvis and in some cases ureter. Um, Generally speaking, those are patients that have already had an endoscopic procedure. They've had a biopsy. You know, they've had pathology proving that diagnosis. So what's done um, is usually it's either instilled by um, looking into a patient's bladder with a camera, cystoscope. And then putting a small open-ended catheter uh, or tube up into the ureter, up into the renal pelvis, and then basically injecting this gel material up directly through that catheter. It can also be placed through a nephrostomy tube, which is a drain that goes directly into the kidney uh, through a patient's back usually, um, and sort of instilled in an antigreed fashion that way. Um, It's given as a series of six treatments once a week uh, as uh, sort of an induction phase. And then if patients have a good response, which is generally judged by another endoscopic look up into the kidney, they might be a candidate for maintenance treatments, uh, which would be once monthly for up to a year.
1: That doesn't sound too bad. It doesn't sound perfect. It's not like it's a a pill that you can take and uh, be done with it. It's still somewhat invasive, but certainly not a surgery. It sounds like um, both uh, the cystoscopic procedure or the uh, installation through a nephrostomy tube would be done as an outpatient basis, like a quick pop in and get your installation and leave? Is that kind of how that works?
2: Yep, absolutely. Um, You know, it has to be done at least initially in an environment where you can take some x-rays. We do fluoroscopic images to measure the size of the renal pelvis so we can calculate how much medicine we have to put in. Once you have that calculation, um, you can do it in the clinic. If you have uh, fluoroscopic capabilities, you could do it um, in a radiology suite. Um, In a patient with a nephrostomy tube, you know, once you have the volume of the renal pelvis, you could do it in the clinic even without fluoroscopy. Um... So, yeah, I think, you know, to your point, it is definitely not perfect, but it is a better option. I'll give you a great example, actually. So, I have a patient with a solitary kidney. So, you know, he doesn't have an option. He's actually already had his other kidney and ureter removed for the same disease. So, we can't take his kidney out. I mean, we could, but he'd be on dialysis probably for life. Um, so, kind of a perfect patient to, to offer something like this who really has no other, um, other options.
1: And so how effective is it? I mean, you mentioned that it was approved just in the last year or two. Do we have data that, you know, after a year of this maintenance therapy, if you've had a good response, and maybe that's the first question, what proportion of people actually have a good response? And then second, after you've had this year of maintenance, um, are we expecting this to be durable long term so that, you know, that's kind of a one and done?
2: Yeah. Um, so, like any other medication that gets approved by the FDA, this had to essentially prove its efficacy before that. Um, so, there are trials, um, basically two major trials. You know, we actually are seeing complete response in a fair number of these patients. I mean, upwards of 50, 60, even 70%, um, which is remarkable, actually. Uh, Again, I think we don't really have 10, 15 year data because it's only been out for a few years and it's not a common disease, so to speak. I mean, statistically, if you think there are about 80,000 new kidney cancers per year, about 5% of those are these particular upper tract urothelial types. So not a huge number of patients. But, um, you know, again, when you're talking about the option of complete removal of the kidney and ureter, which, you know, is not just surgery and recovery from surgery, but is also the impact on kidney function, long-term, you know, renal insufficiency, chronic kidney disease, possibly even dialysis. um, I think this is a good option for, you know, for the right patient.
1: Yeah. And and regardless of whether you go the surgical route or, or the installation of metamycin root. I mean, certainly some people aren't going to have the option of the latter uh, if they have a higher grade tumor. Um, can you talk a little bit about other therapies that these patients might require? I mean, how often do these patients also need systemic therapies or radiation?
2: Yeah, so radiation is not commonly used, really for either type of kidney cancer, um, for those cortical tumors or for the upper tract urothelial tumors. Chemotherapy, it's interesting, um, really has gained, well, I should say in the two different disease settings, some footing. Um, So for the cortical tumors of the kidney, like those solid renal tumors we discussed earlier on there's been a lot of interest in using immunotherapy. Um, so people might be familiar with that for things like lung cancer. Um, and that's being used for metastatic disease for some time. And now is gaining some use in patients with higher risk tumors that are completely removed for patients with that upper tract urothelial, the more bladder cancer type of tumor, if you will. Um, those patients are sometimes treated with what we call neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So they may get chemo before their treatment. Um, there's a lot of debate about that. Um, some of that's extrapolated from bladder cancer data, but, um, the challenge, of course, is once the kidney is removed, those patients may not be able to tolerate systemic chemotherapy because of the kidney function issues. So often they will be seen by a medical oncologist um, in concurrence with radiation, um, perhaps. But, you know, usually it's urology and possibly medical oncology.
0: Dr. Joseph Brito is an assistant professor of medicine and urology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is at yale.edu and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at YaleCancerCenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.